denial in the courtyard. All this time, Peter was sitting out in the courtyard. One servant girl came up to him and said, You were with Jesus, the Galilean. In front of everybody there, he denied it. I don't know what you're talking about. As he moved toward the gate, someone else said to the people there, This man was with Jesus the Nazarene. Again he denied it, salting his denial with an oath. I swear, I have never laid eyes on the man. Shortly after that, some bystanders approached Peter. You've got to be one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he got really nervous and swore, I don't know the man. Just then, a rooster crowed. Peter remembered what Jesus had said. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. He went out and cried and cried and cried. Well, that passage that Lynn just read for us is probably one of the harder parts of the Good Friday story to read. As I read it, I often find myself hoping that it will turn out differently, that Peter won't deny Christ. That's probably because I'm a little bit of an optimist, maybe a lot of an optimist. I have the same problem when I watch the movie Titanic. I know how it ends, I know it's a historical event, yet somehow every time a little part of me hopes maybe this time they won't hit the iceberg and it'll turn out differently for everyone. Yet every time that happens, every time I watch the movie, it ends the same way. They hit the iceberg and the ship sinks to the bottom of the ocean along with Leo. Now, as we read this account of Peter's denial of his disowning Christ, we know how it's going to end. Peter himself couldn't believe it when Christ told him that he would deny him three times before a rooster crowed. And why would he believe this? With all the hints and predictions that Jesus was making in the days leading up to his death, it still would have been hard to grasp this truth, this reality, that the Jesus that Peter had lived with, that he had eaten with, that he had loved and seen do miracles, that he would die in such an inhumane way. But as hard as this passage is to hear, it does give us a lesson in discipleship. And as much as it seems like Peter has failed in these moments, we have to remember that he is actually the last disciple standing. A little while ago, they were all together with Jesus. And then Jesus goes off to pray, and all the disciples fall asleep. No one stays with him. As Jesus is betrayed by Judas, the disciples are afraid and they run away, they scatter. We don't know where they go except for Peter. 
Peter sticks around, although from a distance. This is actually quite a bold move on Peter's part. And maybe it's because he knows that he's special. He's been given the keys to the kingdom. He's been called the rock on whom the church will be built. Yet, as we read this passage, we see that it doesn't matter who you are or how special you are. That following Jesus comes with a cost, and it's a cost that is more than any of us can bear. Now we read that Peter encounters a servant girl, someone who in those days would not have been considered important. So it's kind of strange that he's fearful to speak with her. And she makes this simple statement. She says, you were with Jesus. And Peter plays dumb, insisting that he doesn't know what she's talking about. This happens again as Peter encounters two more people, another servant girl and a bystander, and his response is the same, deny, deny, deny. And so the mouth that once proclaimed Jesus as the Son of God has disowned him. On that third denial, Peter calls down curses. He swears he doesn't know Jesus. Now the word for curses here doesn't mean curses as in using bad language, but as in calling on God to curse someone. And we don't know if Peter is calling on God to curse him himself or if he's cursing Jesus. But most scholars believe that Matthew, in writing this gospel, is presuming that his readers know that this is a curse on Jesus. Because during the time it was written, that was something that was commonly required to show that you were loyal to the Roman Empire. You would have to curse Jesus. So if this is the case, then Peter, the one who holds the keys to heaven and hell, condemns Christ. He curses him in order to save himself. Ironically, this only proves how incapable Peter is of saving himself. It only proves how much he needs a savior. And so, having disowned Jesus three times, a rooster crows, and Peter weeps bitterly. Now, living in Toronto, we probably don't hear roosters crowing very often. So in my mind, as I've read this passage before, I think of a, a rooster that crows at dawn, because Roosters only crow at an appropriate hour of the morning as a way of anticipating the sunrise. This, however, is not the case. When I spent some time in Manila, I remember falling asleep on the first night, very jet-lagged, and I was woken up by a rooster at least once an hour, if not more. I probably practiced calling down my own curses that night. But I was curious about these roosters and why they were crowing so much, so I did a little bit of research. 
And I found out that roosters are actually very social creatures. You know, chickens tend to get all the love because they provide the eggs, but roosters do a lot too. They want to communicate with the other chickens. They want to warn them if there is danger. They want to let them know what time of the day it is. And so they crow. One farmer wrote about his roosters that roosters will crow to let the other chickens know that all is right in the world. And so as Peter has suffered his greatest blunder, he does get a wake-up call. But this call is to let him know that all is right in the world. He understands now, even more than he did before, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And that all that he has predicted about his own death is about to come true. So, of course, Peter weeps bitterly. And usually I hear this being read as a sign that Peter is, is full of shame, that he's full of guilt over his own weakness. And maybe that's a part of it for him. But as Peter is remembering the words of Jesus, I imagine that he is coming to a greater understanding of God's love. How great is the love of Jesus who knows that we will fail him, and yet he still goes willingly to the cross. So this morning we are invited to linger with Peter as he weeps in the courtyard. As we consider our own failings and inadequacies, may we understand that God's love is great enough to cover our worst moments. For as disciples of Christ, we know that we cannot boast in our own achievements. We cannot boast in our own loyalties. But we boast in our weakness. For it is in our weakness and in our failings that the grace of God pours down over us. And it is in our weakness and our failings that we experience the full power of the cross. So perhaps in this way, Peter's worst moment is actually his finest. As it is for all of us when we come to understand our great need for a savior. For the kingdom of God is not for the powerful, but for the weak. The kingdom of God is for those who mess up, for those who try and fail, and for those with great need. And that is why Good Friday is good. We rejoice knowing that Christ's death on the cross is an indication that all is right in the world, and that God has made a way where there was no way. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but 
he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he, if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. He saved others, but he can't save himself. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Jesus, why are you still on the cross? Why won't you do something about it? When we see the scene of Jesus, we can't help but feel the anguish of the situation. Wouldn't the disciples have felt the same way? Jesus, we saw you walking on water. We saw you healing the sick, multiplying food, and even raising the dead. Why are you still on the cross? I thought you were the Son of God. Come down from there and save yourself. I wonder if Jesus was tempted to do so. Was he tempted as he was in the desert without food by Satan? Was he tempted to reveal all, to all those who were insulting him and scorning him the truth that he really is the Son of God? Come down from the cross and save yourself if you are the Son of God. In this scene, we see that Jesus is on the cross with two rebels, one on his right and one on his left. It reminds me of his disciples who fought all over who would be on his right and his left. And yet those who are with him on the cross are not his disciples, but two rebels who even in, the, in their death are insulting Jesus. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God and save yourself. The amazing yet haunting reality from the scene is that it is because Jesus is the Son of God, he is not going to save himself. Unlike Peter, he knows that it is only by dying on the cross he can free all people from the power of sin and death. It is precisely through the cross, one of the worst, most horrific form of murder that humanity has ever created that the Son of God will save us. It isn't through some special miracle. It isn't through some uh, spectacular, something spectacular so that we can all believe in Him. It is through dying on a cross. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God and save yourself. Look at how the crowd is mocking and tempting Him. These people are saying to Jesus, I'll follow you, Jesus. I'll believe in you if you would only save yourself. He can save others, but he can't save himself? What kind of king, what kind of God would do such a thing? The scene of a crucified God in the midst of two rebels on his right and his left. The scene where the religious elite and random travelers are mocking and insulting Jesus. Feels so ridiculous, so appalling and yet so subversive and beautiful. Listen to what Jürgen Moltmann says about the crucified God. God does not become a religion so that man participates in him by corresponding religious thoughts and feelings. 
God does not become a law so that a woman participates in him through obedience to a law. God does not become an ideal so that humanity achieves community with him through constant striving. He humbles himself and takes upon himself the eternal death of the godless and the godforsaken so that all the godless and the godforsaken can experience communion with him. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God and save yourself. It is because he is the Son of God he isn't saving himself. This is the sign of true love, isn't it? That you would save others instead of saving yourself. If you Google people drown, a person drowns trying to save someone, there are so many of these examples just within this past year. Many of these stories are tragic, but are also very beautiful. They are stories of the crucifixion of Jesus. In their love for the other, in their care for the other, they are willing and have lost their lives in trying to save the other. They are tragic, but beautiful stories of love and of the kingdom of God. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God and save yourself.